So our text can be found on the inside of your bulletin. This is Philippians 2, 12 through 18. Paul speaking to the church. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. The word of the Lord. Thanks for being Well, I'm excited about this sermon time because we get to talk about one of my favorite subjects, complaining, arguing, and whining. I'm sure you guys came to church going, gosh, I wonder if he's going to get to talk about complaining, arguing, and whining. In fact, even as a preface, you might have been complaining, arguing, and whining on your way here to get ready for this sermon. You know, I found that Sundays are one of the most challenging days to get everyone up and dressed and get to church to come and worship. There's a lot of grumbling and a lot of waking up and a lot of whatever. And You know, it's, uh, it's interesting. We've always been familiar with this. I don't know if you were a kid and you remember saying that question on a trip, are we there yet? We said that last night when we were going to Bush Gardens for a concert with the Canutes and the Stricklands. Are we there yet? All of you are familiar with kids arguing with one another about the most ridiculous things, and yet it's life and death. We're not immune to arguing and grumbling ourselves, are we? When our boss tells us that a report is due at 5 o'clock that day, or whether we have to go deal with the repairman, or whatever the problem is in our life, it's very, very easy to devolve into grumbling and complaining and whining. You know, we live in the best country in the world. People are literally dying to get into this place we call America. And yet it's so easy, myself included, to be frustrated with our world, frustrated with problems, frustrated with people. And so the question is, how are we to live in this world? I confess that I am as guilty as everyone else with arguments over the dumbest things. I was talking with my wife about some of the ridiculous arguments we've had in our lifetime. This is a perfect example. If you were dying from being in the desert, would you rather, when you had water, drink water or jump into a pool of water? My wife said drink water. I myself said to jump into a pool of water as the skin is the largest organ in the body. And so what happened was a constant trade as we both tried to vest each other intellectually in this argument. Now any physicians would know it's obvious you need to jump into water because it's obvious to everyone. And so I shall claim victory in that. But oh, that is only one of many. The next argument would be my wife saying to me when I was on a macho run, we need to get our kids knives, you know? 
They've got enough knives so they can get out there in the forest and be tough. And so I got a knife for Mark and for Will and for my six-year-old Daniel. I got this small knife here with all of these handy-dandy blades. Granted, Daniel is six. And my wife looks at me and says, you are not going to give this to our child. To which I said, no, 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 it's a smaller knife. It should be fine, okay? And so giving it to my son, who promptly opened up the blade and gave himself a nice cut on his hand. And my wife gave me that look that so many men often get, which basically says, you're an idiot. And I had to confess that she was right. You know, we have to be right, don't we? We live in a society where there's no compromise, no backing down. We live in families sometimes where there is utter war, where we'll fight to the death for what we believe. Maybe you've even been in a church where the battle lines are drawn, the civil war has begun, and it's a fight to the death. And yet we look at Jesus Christ, and we see a different way of living, a different philosophy, a different person, a Savior who allowed himself to be wronged by the very people who he created, one who was led like a sheep to the slaughter and did not speak, standing in front of Pilate as he's accused and yet saying nothing, praying to love his enemies even when they were cursing him, one who seemed to have rejoicing in that the Father's will was being carried out even amidst his pain. See, I want to suggest to you that the path to joy is not the path of position, but the path of submission. That the way to experience the joy of Christ is to be single-minded with God, but also to be submissive-minded with each other. Because uh, when you give up your right to be right to God, you too can experience the joy of Christ. And so in this passage, we're going to look at three particular traits of what it means to be submissive. Number one, we must submit to the Father. And then number two, we must submit to each other. And then finally, we must rejoice over right, and we must rejoice over wrong. Because when you give up your right to be right to God, you will experience the joy of Christ. Well, let's look at point one. Submit to our Heavenly Father. Look at verse 12. Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Whenever you see therefore in the Bible, you need to look at what just happened before. The passage before was talking about Jesus Christ, our attitude should be the same as Him, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made Himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant. And he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And because he did that, God exalted him to the highest place. See, Paul is giving a picture of this one, Jesus Christ, and how he lived obediently to the Father. And so he says, therefore, my beloved, in other words, therefore, Philippians church, therefore, Redeemer, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your fear. Uh, work out your own salvation. See, he's saying to the Philippian church, you are like Jesus. You who have heard the word, who have believed in God, 
who have sought to obey Him with your life. You must also live like Christ and live a submissive life, not whining or complaining, but rather accepting the circumstances that God has given you. You must work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Notice it says, work out your own. We have our own path to travel, don't we? Jesus had his that went to the cross. That's probably not going to be ours. And yet you have a path of salvation. Whatever it is, God has you on it. And he says to work out your own salvation. Now this word work out is not the same as work on. The Greek literally means to carry it to completion. It's an agriculture, agriculture term. So when there was a harvest, to go ahead and harvest all of it to the very end. The harvest was there. It simply needed to be collected. So to carry to completion this salvation, this whatever it is in your own path leading to this salvation, with the same attitude as Jesus, the same joyful submission. But to work out this salvation with fear and trembling. It's not talking about terror there. But he's talking about caution and seriousness and vigilance. He says, Paul in 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. I don't know if you've ever held something very, very expensive or delicate in your hands. I remember holding up my children and just hoping, hoping that I wouldn't make a mistake because of this precious thing in my hand. What Paul is saying is you've been given something precious. A salvation, a gift from God. Hold on to it. Be serious about it. Work it out to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So how do we do that? In obedience and submission to God. Because verse 13 says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. For it is. It's God who's working in your life. Work out your own salvation. Go, continue on this path. Whatever it is that God has put you on that leads to me. For it is I who am working in you to will and to act. This word working in the Greek literally uh, translated means energeo. From where we get the word energy. My energy is in you, Christian. To will, to want to do, and to work for his pleasure. It was St. Augustine who said, We will, but God works the will in us. We work, therefore, but God works the working in us. See, God moves in our hearts. He encourages us. He energizes us. And He says, Walk in the path by the power that I have given you, as my Son Jesus Christ did. We do it obediently in submission to God. And why do we do it? For His Good pleasure. Look at the end of verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Jesus is doing this work in you. This life that He's brought in you because He wants to. Because He loves you. Because it brings pleasure to see Him drawing for Him to draw you to Himself. See, Christ's life of submission and obedience, the way He's uh, responded to the Father, has been transferred to you and me through this energy of God for His pleasure. And so you and I must submit 
to God like Christ. We must live out our own path with seriousness and earnestness, not whining or complaining or grumbling, but following Christ's example, being obedient, even obedient to death. I've had opportunity in the last several months to reflect on the path that God has given me to run. I'm the father of four children, one who has already gone to heaven, three others. God has put these children in my path. God has put the job, the vocation I do in my path. I'm a pastor. I remember when I left Young Life staff saying, I will never become a pastor. And lo and behold, here I am, preaching to you. I guess that makes me a hypocrite, doesn't it? Well, I don't know. You know, this is the path, the path uh, that led to the death of our son, Mark. I never saw that one coming. But the path that God has put me on goes straight through these things. And many other things. There's joy in the path, but there's pain and suffering. And so how will I respond? Will I whine and complain to God? What you are doing to me is wrong. You've got it all wrong, God. Why did you give this to me? I'm not saying we shouldn't hurt and struggle and question and endure. But at the bottom of it all, the question comes, do you trust me? Do you trust me, child, that I have it all figured out and it's all going to work out in the end? So we must trust and submit and hope for the joy that's on the other side. What's your path that you're on right now? Maybe you've lost a child. Maybe you've lost a spouse. You've experienced that pain on your path. Maybe you're divorced. A horrible relationship. Something that was beautiful that has gone wrong. Maybe you're sick. Your body continues to not work. It's there with you when you go to sleep. It's there with you when you wake up. See, we must see our path for what it is. God working out His salvation in us. So we too must submit to the Father. Not whining, not complaining, but rather with earnestness and seriousness. We submit by surrendering. Whatever your circumstances, I don't know what they are. It begins with submission to God. Trust that He knows the path and that He will bring me to the end of it for His good pleasure by His energy working with me. When you give up your right to be right to God, you too will experience the joy of Christ. So we give up our right to be right to God. But this brings me to my second point. We must submit to each other. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God. You know, the, the path toward salvation, the path toward God, always goes through relationships. Wouldn't it be great if you could go live in a cave, you know, and seal it up and just hang out there in the corner, you know, eating triscuits or something, waiting until it's all done? But, you know, even if you hid in that corner, people would still be there. Memories and relationships are path goes through relationships. And so Paul says, do all things, not just things with God, all things, whether mundane or serious, do all things without grumbling or disputing. It's 
word grumbling is a great word in, in the Hebrew. It's gongismus. It's a, a, an onomatopoeia. Onomatopoeia? Tomato, tomato? Onomatopoeia. And onomatopoeia is a word that is made up to resemble what the word means. And so the word means bees that are buzzing. Okay? Bees that are buzzing. What do you mean like that? Have you ever done this? Told a kid, you have to go to bed now. You know, I need that report on my desk tomorrow. You know, it's in there. It might be quiet, but the buzzing is going on. The grumbling is there. Go clean your room. Go take out the trash. The grumbling. What's even worse is when multiple bees get together and they start to hive. And a family starts grumbling and complaining. Or the business, the employees come together and you hear this buzz going on in the corner over there by the water cooler. The most dangerous of buzzing is in the church. When people get together and start buzzing about something. This is the word that was used for the, in the Old Testament with the children of Israel. They would start to grumble and complain. Why did you bring us out here in the desert, Moses, to die? And the bees were buzzing. Do all things, Paul says, without grumbling or disputing. The word disputing, dialogismos, from where we get the word dialogue. And dialogue, in the good sense, uh, is a good thing. To communicate, to talk to one another, to work on particular issues. But in the Greek, in the bad sense, it means to doubt, to, to, to dispute, to argue. Where the bees buzzing is a moral rebellion, disputing is intellectual rebellion. Somebody tells you to do something and you're ready with an explanation right away why you shouldn't. And you've got the ten point outline why this is a bad decision and a bad idea and you shouldn't be doing it. Sometimes your instant response with someone is to say no and then come up with a reason afterwards. Everyone's looking at me. We're all doing it. You know you, know you are. We do these things. But Paul says, do all things without grumbling and disputing. Think about what that means in your life. Philippians 2.15, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. See, if you live your life like this without complaining, grumbling, and disputing, you may be blameless. The point is that there's a goal to this, that you may be blameless. Word, it literally means without blame, meaning the judgment of others. They have nothing to hold against you. In the old ancient tombstones, they would write these words, without blame. In other words, the accounts are clear. There's nobody that can have anything against you. Like the scriptures that say, live such good lives as even among your enemies, that they don't have things to say. Live your life being blameless. You will be blameless and innocent. The word innocent meaning unmixed. It's pure. It's a picture of your character. It comes from within. To be without blame and innocent. Children of God in the midst of a generation that's crooked and twisted. Crooked, the word scolios. Scoliosis, there's a lot of great words here. It's curved. It's twisted. It's corrupt is what it means 
It's not right. Twisted means perverted. We live in a twisted and perverted generation. And we live in the midst of it. Right here, right now. But among these people, by living with this character, you would shine as lights in the world. Jesus, who lived like this with people and with God, spoke and said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's interesting that the name that was given for people who believed in Christ was Christians, little Christs. We are called to live the same life, not complaining or arguing, but in submission to God and one another, that we might, as little Christs, shine the light of God amidst this crooked and twisted generation. Jesus served and he loved his enemies. He didn't grumble. He loved. He laid down his life. And if we do this too, if we live like this, we too will shine the light of Christ. I saw a news article uh, from Colorado that simply was titled this, Church Splits Over Spelling of Alleluia. Greenland, Colorado, a little Jewish praise word caused a lot of controversy as a Colorado church divided over the proper spelling of Alleluia. They have split up and reformed as separate congregations. The problem arose when the Board of Elders at Full Gospel Temple budgeted money for a praise banner to hang from the sanctuary ceiling bearing the word Alleluia or Alleluia. One Hallelujah or Alleluia. One faction insisted that the word be spelled the first way, with the H, while the others wouldn't budge from the second way. Petitions were drawn up, rallies held, late at night, threats received by both sides. One man, an Alleluia supporter, was nearly clobbered by a rock that came through his window. The rock bore a note that simply said, Hallelujah! <laughs> It's true. This happens to them. Both sides were adamant that since they had grown up with a particular spelling, theirs was correct. I'm going to do a Nikita Khrushchev. <laughs> it makes a tremendous difference when you open your eyes and see if there's on the banner, it's spelled wrong, said a hallelujah supporter. It's so jarring to see it without the H at the beginning. Nobody spells it that way anymore. I was so sick about it, I couldn't sleep, said Evelyn Haney, 57. An equally ardent Alleluia supporter who carried a sign during a recent day of picketing. You think some people spell this wonderful word with a J in it? She meant an H, clearly. It's not something where I question their salvation, but at times you have to wonder. The two churches. The two churches now meet in separate school auditoriums. And each has fashioned a banner to suit its own preference. Worship, says one parishioner, is much better now. How did this begin? A couple of people that saw one thing their way and refused to budge and decided to grumble and complain and build factions and find hills to die on. There was much grumbling and complaining in the church, and look at what it led to. You know, a lot of people think about the church that way today. And who do we have to blame for it but ourselves? 
Bible says to do all things without complaining and arguing. Kids, if you're listening, when your parents tell you to go study, when it's curfew time, when the rules are called out, do you start buzzing, angry, and upset? Do you start to intellectually bring your challenge to the forefront and battle to the death? Spouses, when you're reminded to do something that you said you would do, do you get angry and frustrated that you should have to stop what you're doing to go help and serve this other person? Do you come up with all the reasons why they're wrong and you're right? Churches, do you begin to buzz when the pastor says, hey, we're going to try something different? You know, one of the things I love about this church, we're not big buzzers. Say what you want about us. There's not a whole lot of grumbling and complaining in this church. I have never met a church that serves better than this church. Whoever it is that's going and helping, it's just quiet and go do it. I think that speaks volumes to people around us. I think we're on the right path. But things get more complicated, and people come, and the challenge with the church is you put a bunch of sinners in the same room. There's going to be problems. Which path will we follow? The path of me first, or the path of you? You know, there's two types of people that walk into a door. One says, here I am, and the other says, there you are. Which will we be? Submit your path to God. And submit your path to others. Give up your right to always be right. Walk in the path of Christ because joy comes in surrender and submission. This brings me to my final point. Rejoice when you're right and rejoice when you're wrong. Uh, Paul in Philippians says, if you live this way, holding fast to the word of life, that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. See, Paul is saying that if you live this life, I will rejoice. Because I'm so wanting you to experience the joy that Christ experienced in laying down his life that I will do anything. My life will be in vain if you don't participate in understanding what it means to live in submission. Indeed, it doesn't even matter if I'm being poured out as a drink offering. What he's really saying is that I'm going to be dying because of the sacrifice that you're making. If it takes me dying for you to live this way, it's worth it to me. I'm glad and I rejoice. Is this not a call for us to do this with one another? To pray for one another? To aspire for one another? To lay down our lives? To submit to one another? The best way we can, we can do that is by modeling. And Paul was the greatest model. And Paul knew the perfect model, Jesus Christ. Jesus, if this is happening, I'm glad, and I rejoice with you all. And likewise, you also should rejoice with me. You know, what we need is a rerouting of our priorities. It's not my enjoyment. It's your enjoyment. It's not about having my own needs met. It's about living in harmony and submission to other people. Surrendering your needs 
to help Alex move his house, to help Bev Allen, to work in the shed ministry, toiling away, to prepare the communion cups, to teach Sunday school, and all of the various things that you do. It's how we treat each other when we see each other walk into the room. It's how we face life. Christ showed us the path. He submitted. He didn't have to be right, but he had to be loved. And because of that, he was exalted. And I want my life and your life to be just like that. To apologize. To change what I'm doing. To get a bigger vision for my life than simply me. We can pray for one another. We can serve and help one another. When we lift each other up and submit to them like little Christs, we will experience the joy as He lifts us up as He did with His Son. When you, my friends, finally give up your right to be right to God, you too will experience the joy that Jesus Christ experienced as He laid down His life for the life of the world. Let's pray. Lord, this is a hard teaching. Surely I can submit to you. You're the God of the universe and perfect. Lord, but you're asking me to do more. To submit to others. Even when I don't like what it is that they're telling me to do. Lord, it's so easy to be frustrated. And to want my own way. Lord, to consider other people's needs less important than my own. So Lord, help me and help us. To do all things without complaining or disputing. To love in the place of anger. To lay down our lives and submit as our sacrifice. Only by your energy working within us for your good pleasure can this happen. But we pray that you would do this for us. For your good pleasure. We pray all of this in Christ's name.